0: You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgbm.org. Thanks for listening.
1: Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're co hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are speaking with Dr. Mary Murphy, who is here at Extreme History Headquarters with us today. And we're excited to talk with Mary, but before we do that, We're glad to be back after, oh, several weeks uh, off having our hiatus. So, Crystal, I want to catch up with you on what you've been doing. How have your past few weeks been? They've
0: been really good. We've been doing a lot of summertime things, like uh, walking tours. The walking tours have been great. We've had so many people. Have they been filling up? Come, yes, yes. And, of course, Murders, Madams, and Mediums, our walking tour, is the most uh, popular. People love to hear about murder and mayhem.
1: So <laughs> are you getting out of towners? Because there's yeah, a lot of out of town are. license plates out there right now. Yeah, we've yeah. gotten
0: a lot of people from out of town coming to do tours, which is great. We love to talk about our history, our Bozeman history, but really Montana and national history as well. So, so walking tours have been great these last few weeks. And then also we did our grand opening for our our used bookshop Yay. that we have. Which congratulations. Is so good. Yeah, congratulations! That's wonderful. awesome. Awesome. What,
1: what did you um, do? What was the plan for the grand we opening?
0: Had, we had, uh, it was open. We were open from about 1 to 5. We had balloons outside. Because, you know, there's no grand opening is proper have. without Gotta balloons. Have have balloons. So. Absolutely. <laughs> so we had balloons. We had snacks. We had tons of people come. And it was so much fun to... Uh, introduce everybody to our new used book I hope so. you made some sales. We, too. Did. we did. did, we did, yeah. we definitely did, and got some of those Montana history books out there in people's hands. And and Mary, you donated some books that we sold, and, yes. and they, they were a hit. They were a, a hit. hit. <laughs> Happy to clean my bookshelves. You'll Yay. get more. Oh, uh, good, <laughs> good.
1: That's how it
0: works. Yes. Yeah. I kind of wanted to put a Mary Murphy section. <laughs> <laughs> These are from the Mary Murphy collection. But I didn't do that. But. <laughs> That would have been fun to do. So, Nancy, what about you? Because you have had some amazing adventures.
1: Part of the reason for our hiatus was I actually took a trip with my husband to Europe, and we went to Italy. We got in um, after Mm -hmm. wondering if um, uh, our COVID tests and our um, vaccine cards and everything would, would allow us in, and that was great. And we were in northern Italy kind of centered around Bologna. Have you ever been, Mary? No. I had never been to Italy, and luckily my nephew had spent a semester there studying physics, surprisingly. But Bologna has an amazing history in the north, and they actually are known, um, I should say this, for their cuisine. Mm. Everyone goes to Bologna for their cuisine. So they have one of Uh. the, you know, all parts of Italy have, you know, different wines and different cuisines, but Bologna is known for being, I think they call it something that has to do with, like, fat and flavor, and I was like, I'm in. <laughs> so they had amazing uh, food there. And um, amazing thing about Bologna is the whole city has these arcades, these like sheltered arcades. Everywhere you walk, you can be under one. So you're sheltered from the sun, from the rain. Beautiful. It's a lovely city to walk around in and everything. So we did a, a, a lot of stuff there, great museums, basilicas, all of that. Then we were in the Dolomites for a while. And then I went to Greece to meet my daughter and, After She did a two-week program and we went to the island of Santorini or Mm -hmm. Thera, which this is a place I hadn't been in 30 years. I was 20 when I was last there. And it is one of my favorite spots in all of Greece and probably of all the Cycladic islands because it's one that's often most associated with Atlantis and the whole myth. Mm. And I don't know if you know about this, Mary, or you know about this, Crystal, but it was originally more of a circular-shaped island, but it's a very volcanic island, and it had this amazing eruption in somewhere between 15 and 1600 B.C., and a whole bunch of it sunk. And mm. um, on one part of the island, it created a Pompeii of a Bronze Age site called Akrotiri. Mm. So the archaeology there... Is amazing, and and the thing is, not that long afterwards, people kept inhabiting it. So they were a great seafaring culture before and after that eruption. And um, the Venetians actually took it over for a while too. I had I had wow. four hours in Venice, and that was cool. Wow. <laughs> but so um, more overwhelming uh, history and archaeology than I could cram into our banter section here. But it was yeah. a really wonderful trip, and it it just made me want to go back mm-hmm. and uh, bring all my friends. So Crystal, you have yeah. to come. Next. I no, I want to. Find and yeah. Mary, if you if you are have any desire at all, this is the Greek island I would recommend. It's so good. It's so good. Oh, that sounds so fun! It was it was really was, fun. It was fun
0: to follow you along on Facebook and see where you were and what you were experiencing, and it looked
1: beautiful. So. We yes, we had a lot of fun. So thanks okay. for asking about that. But yeah. there's no place like home. It's yeah, always good to come home after all that traveling and and everything. So happy to be back. Um, so yeah, yeah, we are so happy to have you here with us today, Mary. Oh, I'm thrilled. Oh. I'm thrilled to be here in this wonderful history place that
0: you've created and talk to you today.
1: Yeah, we're so
0: glad to have you with us.
1: Yeah, so now um, we want to start off by telling our listeners a little bit about you, which is how we start most of our shows with our guests. So Dr. Mary Murphy is a distinguished professor of history at Montana State University in Bozeman, and she's the director of the Ivan Doig Center for the Study of of Lands and Peoples in the North American West. She teaches courses in American history with a special focus on gender in the North American West. Among her books are Hope in Hard Times, New Deal Photographs of Montana, 1936 to 1942, and Mining Cultures, Men, Women, and Leisure in Butte, 1914 through 1941.
0: Welcome, Mary. We're going to also start by asking you how you got interested in history, how you came to history. And I don't think I've ever asked you this question, so I'm so excited um, to know, hear when the When did you know it was going to be yeah. your
1: profession? Yeah. You know?
0: Well, it, I didn't
2: know it was going to be my profession until quite late, but I would say that I came to history as a little kid. Because really? I grew up in Massachusetts. Oh. And my sisters and I used the old colonial play, um, cemeteries as our playgrounds. Oh so we were gosh. surrounded by <gasps> all of those great gravestones. And those are
1: the really good gravestones, yes. right? They have with a the lot angel, of symbolism. The dead's head yes, with the death's head with the it's angel, kind of wings. creepy but really cool exactly. too. Exactly.
2: Yeah. So re- very appealing to children. Yeah. <laughs> and my dad liked history, and on weekends he would take us to you know Bunker Hill Monument oh, and the Constitution sure. and Walden Pond. So we were just kind of steeped in it. And when I was I was thinking about this, um, when I was in the fourth grade, I won the prize for reading the most books in the children's room at the public library. And I picked as my prize. An American history textbook.
1: Whoa. Is okay. that like nerdy it's, or what? Th- that's very wow. cool. Why do you think you
2: picked it? I just loved those stories. Yeah. And I loved, the, you know, I think at, on some level I realized here I was in this landscape where, you know, um, the American Revolution yes. was born yes. and all of this history took place. And yeah. I really like those stories. Yeah. And, um, and then when I eventually was in college, I... I ended up taking a course in um, the history of working people in America. Oh, that sounds interesting. It was really interesting. It's what we would now call labor history. And the um, teacher turned out to have his father worked in the same factory in Worcester, Massachusetts, that my grandfather had worked in. Oh, my gosh. And no one in my family had gone to college at all. And I remember going to his office one day and saying, how do I get to do this? Right. You know. And so he put me in touch with some labor historians at different universities. And this was pre-email. And I typed little letters and said, Uh. you know, what is your program like? And et cetera, et cetera. And they all wrote back these incredibly gracious
0: letters.
2: Wow. So it kind of sealed my
0: fate. Wow. Right, right.
2: So then the door was open. Yeah yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: So then you went on to um, get a master's degree and a PhD?
2: Yes. So I went okay. to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, okay. and I happened to be there when, shortly after the Southern Oral History Program got oh, started. Oh my goodness. So I took a seminar in oral history and then um, worked for that project interviewing uh, textile workers because the program had gotten a large uh, NEH grant to study the transition from an agricultural to an industrial society. So one, it got me out in North Carolina, away from the university, I was the only Yankee on the project. Wow. (laughs) And um, it was just so much fun and so interesting.
1: And what a great way to do history. You're talking to people, Uh you're not only in the archives. Right. Wow. And what, you know, a basis for interview skills you have the rest of your career. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. What a great way to learn how to do oral history right off the bat. Exactly. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it was that experience that led me to Butte. Okay. Yes, because in that oral history class was a a woman who had um, worked in Montana, and she was was studying folklore. Uh, The University of North Carolina had a great folklore program. And so um, one of the faculty told us about this grant that the NEH had at the time. It was called the Youth Grant Program. It no longer exists. And we wrote this proposal to go to Butte, Oh, Which was wow. the, um, you know, it's where the Western Federation of Miners was founded, where the Western labor movement was born, right. and a site of a lot of rich folklore associated with mining. To do an oral history project, and mm. lo and behold, we got it! Wow. So we and we came to Butte, Montana, in That's, January.
1: Oh <laughs> my! <laughs> so when you
2: say we, how many? Just just this one other woman. Okay. Okay. And um, we rented a little apartment in uptown. Oh my gosh! And the folks at the Butte Historical Society were really welcoming, and one of them came ba- ba- knocked on the door and bounded up the stairs one day. A little file box full of index cards with the names of people he thought we should
0: interview. <gasps> wow. wow! So it just—it just, it just made ask what year
1: this was. This was uh, 1980. So I'm trying to okay. think of what Butte would have been like then compared to well, more you know, recently.
2: I, I didn't really realize that at the time because I was trying to study the history, but that was the real tumult of the Anaconda Company pulling out you know what was going to happen with the pit wow um so there was a lot
1: no super fun site yet no super fun site yet and the
2: and there were a lot of um there were i should say some newcomers who were working for the uh, national center for appropriate technology Hmm. which was this very innovative program and so there were young um people who were um preservationists and writers and uh and graphic designers and scientists, and they were all they all were taken, as was I, with this amazing place. You know, yeah. just this this incredible landscape and then this rich history. Right. So uh, so several of them joined the historical society. So it was a very unique to me, and as I look back now after all this time, confluence of young people really interested in the older residents who were desperately trying to preserve this you know these stories and these buildings and they really worked
1: together you know it was a very welcoming place. Wow Wow! and you you had the vision to to somehow divine that from what you learned about it and you you went ahead and went so did that then mean that Butte became a focus of work after that or did you go back and do something else?
2: Well I you know so I I kind of joke but this is true um, when I got off the bus, because I flew into Missoula to meet oh, this right. friend, and then we took the bus, Wow! and it was a beautiful winter day. You know, we were driving through the Deer Lodge Valley, and all of the willows were coated with ice, mm. and the sky was blue, and I was like, oh, my, I've never seen anything yeah, like this. Right. And yeah. then we arrived in Butte, and there's the Continental Divide, mm-hmm. and this... City that looked like the East Coast, it does. yeah, right. Same it architecture, yeah, like yeah. Yep. But in this amazing mountain setting, and it was full. Of the kind of people I grew up with. All these different ethnic, right. you know. There's a lot um, of Irish people in Massachusetts Irish people. and in Butte. Yep. In fact, I say, my name is Mary Murphy, yep. and I know how to speak Irish Catholic. Yeah, there, <laughs> me too. <laughs> so I had, Yay. you know, by the time people, realized, when I would introduce myself, when I was trying to set up an interview, as Mary Murphy, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. By the time they realized I wasn't from Butte, it was all
1: okay. Yeah, because you had the name. right. You yeah. had
0: the right. name that, that brought and you so in. Many. Yeah. Of
1: the miners were Irish. Right, I had no idea until I moved to Montana. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: wow, yeah. And and so so was the focus um, for this for this grant proposal and for this project Butte just because of all that labor history there. Yeah, and so that I mean i was just surprised that was on anyone's radar at that time, but it was, huh? Uh, yeah,
2: I mean yeah. I think the early the, the 1980s were a real uh, the 70s and 80s were a real. um, flourishing of labor history, of, of, you know, the social history movement, looking at ordinary working people, starting to look at racial minorities, looking at women Mm -hmm. to to revise the standard narrative of American history. So I think there was a lot of interest at that time. And, um, and when I was there, you know, it was we were young. I mean, it was only in my second year in graduate school. What yeah. did I know? And, um, and I, you know, took their recommendations. Oh, you should talk to so-and-so and so-and-so. There wasn't a lot of coherence to this project, <laughs> I have to say. But I got really interested in women's stories because as I did a lot of reading, and I have to say, you know, the training that I got in North Carolina was you would never go out on an interview unless you had done a lot. Of research. Mm-hmm. And um, I came to realize, you know, how skewed the gender ratio had mm-hmm. been in Butte mm-hmm. really until the 40s. Wow! And, um, and it was so interesting, because unlike the South, where I had been interviewing textile workers, or the Northeast, where I grew up, there were no industrial jobs for women. You mm-hmm. know, the women, women's jobs were in the service sector. Mm-hmm. In fact, in Montana, the um, the greatest number of women who worked for wages worked in domestic service into the 1940s. Hmm. So I thought, how do women negotiate this very male-dominated world? Where were their spaces? And I didn't have the academic language at the time to really conceptualize that, but I knew these stories that i talked to people who, you know, were waitresses mm-hmm. or board- boarding housekeepers. And... Um, and I just became really fascinated with
1: women's history. So these are the things that were sort of missing from the labor histories that maybe you were studying yeah. in school. So I, we want to, that kind of gets us to our next question was, you know, knowing that a lot of your early research was about Butte, um, because you studied not only labor, and I don't know if this grew out of, as you're saying, your oral histories, but prostitution, women's history, what women did. Um, as you said in their spaces but also in their leisure time you know Mm -hmm. how did all of this work in a in a really industrial um, city Mm -hmm. pretty much the only one in this part of the west Uh, that sounds amazing to me so tell us a little bit about yeah how those interviews maybe led to your uh, delving into women's history Mm -hmm. and understanding their leisure time and work time
2: well when I so I went you know I worked for a six months or something in Butte and then I went back to uh, Chapel Hill to continue my classes and I had and I and I wanted to write about Butte for my master's thesis and I wanted to do write about women and interestingly enough and both of you know this from your own research the ri- women who appeared most in public records mm, mm-hmm. were prostitutes yeah. right they were arrested right. there were stories in the paper about right. violence or suicide you know mm-hmm. they were the Sanborn Fire insurance maps mm-hmm. that clearly labeled the shift of where the red light district moved. Mm-hmm. And so that had not been my original interest, but from afar, those were the records that I could access. access yeah, So I ended up writing my master's thesis on um, uh, prostitution in Butte. But also in the same time when I had left Butte after that first project, I had said to the people at the Historical Society, well, if any work comes up, let me know and so I get this call one day and they had gotten a grant to in, do a building inventory for the National Historic Landmark of the National Historic Landmark District and I said, well, I don't know anything about architecture and they said we can teach you <laughs> so I Great. went back for several summers and worked oh, on that nice. and Wonderful. you know became really interested and um, and as I learned more about Butte and and thinking about it in comparison to the places I had learned about in the South, what became really clear was as dominant as the Anaconda Copper Mining Company was, Butte was not a company town like Mm -hmm. Southern Mill Towns were. Mm -hmm. You know, in Southern Mill Towns, the mill often owned all the housing. Mm -hmm. They decided which churches could be built there. Um, they had a lot. They had company stores where you had to buy your groceries and supplies and everything. And Butte didn't have that. I mean, Butte was, Montana was dominated by the political and economic power of the Anaconda Company, but they didn't seem interested in controlling that daily life right so the schools were public schools and catholic yeah. schools mm-hmm. they weren't supported by the company you know there were seemed to me at the time a zillion different churches of all yeah. denominations right it seems right, like, yeah, right. there a was church everywhere there. right yeah. it was hennessy's department store yeah. was not a company store mm-hmm. there were all kinds of groceries and merchants all and independent and yeah. all independent and then there was um this, you know, kind of rich social life. I mean, right. one, you know, I I knew about prostitution and the red light district, but also the saloon culture, movie theaters, okay. drama, theater, all kinds of other, all kinds of right. things, um, cafes, restaurants, right? Um, and so I started thinking, well, how do people? How do people exhibit autonomy? in places of leisure, right? They don't mm-hmm. have any, they don't have much autonomy at work, right? They're in the mines, right. even though there's a union, mm-hmm. th- there's there's not a lot of leeway in terms of how you can do your work, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking about that contrast between southern company towns where people were often quite monitored and ma- moral judgments made upon their character. And, you know, if, if a foreman or a superintendent didn't like how you behaved, you could be fired and lose your house. So it's not like mm-hmm. you could stay in your house and then find a job in another place. The mill was the only place to work. Mm-hmm. So I just, um, and, and I also have to say that knowing, you know, I was interested in labor history and I was interested in the history of labor organizations, But also knowing that the Anaconda Company controlled the newspapers,
1: I thought it was very difficult
2: to get the labor perspective at that time. And we didn't have the kind of digital sources that we now have to get Mm -hmm. multiple
1: perspectives. So I decided to focus on leisure. Hmm. So before we go any further, because I want to dive into that, w- can you just give for our listeners who may not be familiar with the history of Butte, just kind of a little bit of a sense of that history and its importance and significance, mm-hmm. so how it got going and up to the time period that you were focusing on?
2: Sure, because <clears throat> as everybody who knows me knows, Butte is the most interesting city in the West. <laughs> of course it Apologies is. Apologies to people
0: who don't live there. <laughs> um, but, it, well, it is called Butte America, so, right,
2: yeah. um, But it started as a, you know, Western mining camp. There was a discovery of gold and then of silver. Um, and it looked like it was going to die out because they weren't very rich deposits. And then in the early 1880s, these um, very rich veins of copper were discovered. And, you know, that happened to coincide with the electrical revolution in America. Mm -hmm. So you needed copper to for electricity. You needed copper to electrify railroads and to electrify city streets and homes and everything. And And around the
1: world, not just in the US. Yes, exactly.
2: And if you wanted indoor plumbing. I mean, there oh, are right. there are thousands of houses still in Montana that Old have pipes made pipes. by the Anaconda Company. Wow. We have a copper pipe right, right over here. <laughs> yeah. it's original. Right. Or exactly, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it had tremendous economic significance, and lot, and there were, and and for historians of technology and science, all kinds of innovations in mining because it had, you know, the, one of the nicknames for Butte was mile high and mile deep. Right, right. the altitude is oh, you're at about. 5,000 feet. And some of those mine shafts went a mile down and just riddled the right. whole hill. Um, so from the mining history point of view, it's very fascinating. Yeah. But then it also brought this amazing diversity of people, right? So Nancy, you mentioned the Irish miners and right. the Cornish miners who were already very skilled from working in tin and copper mines in Cornwall. Right. But then there were just waves of immigration. So people from, you know, Eastern Europe, a pe- lot of people from Canada. Right. Um, and they, some of them tended to congregate in different areas. So the Irish lived in Dublin Gulch, mm. and the Cornish lived in Centerville, wow. and the Finns lived in Finntown. And, then, <laughs> um, and they didn't always get along, yeah. you know, right? <laughs> but um there was, you know, just to me, this really fascinating culture of all these different people there. Mm-hmm. And then the whole labor organizing perspective, you right. know, how, how did the people come together to form unions and how successful was that? And, and of course, it was driven by the miners. But then all these other trades and um groups unionized as well. So, you know, skilled workers like plumbers and electricians had their own union, carpenters had their own Mm -hmm. unions. The first telephone operators union in the United States was formed in Butte. Really? Mm -hmm. Wow.
1: So there was this real kind of, even though it was so diverse, democratic kind of spirit to sort of maybe not just accept this top-down approach to how their lives are organized and managed. And, right, okay. right.
2: And that was part of a, a larger national mm. labor movement as well. You know, we're talking the late 19th century, mm-hmm. the Gilded Age, robber barons, right. questions about should, can a democracy live with these powerful monopolies? Mm-hmm. Um, kind of feel like that sounds very familiar for the <laughs> present day, doesn't it, right? Sure does. you yeah. 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 know, yeah. <laughs> Who should be... A, and, and I have to say, you know, these unions it's it's not like they were these ideal uh, welcoming um, organizations mm-hmm. they kept out Chinese right, you right. Know, they, you could enjoy they were they Ugh. felt they were threatened that you know Chinese workers threatened their position mm-hmm. um, Samuel Gompers who was the head of the American Federation of the of Labor in the early 20th century um, he wrote this pamphlet Compare, that said something like, meat versus rice, American <laughs> citizens versus Chinese coolism, which wow. will survive. Wow. And of course, the pamphlet had nothing to do with food, but it was just identifying. Right. You know, the people. basic staple as perceived. Exactly.
1: Wow. Exactly. Yeah, Because African Americans wouldn't have been included in oh, those they, at all. No. Very, no. Right. Right. Yeah. And, of course, Native people were just, you know, on the reservations by this point. Yeah, uh, there yeah. were
2: small populations of landless yeah. mm-hmm. Indians at times. And there was a small African-American community, um, many of whom had worked on the railroad and a few mm-hmm. professionals. But they were not welcome in the mines. Right, mm. right. And were the Chinese welcome in the mines or not? No, okay. not in the underground mines. You okay. know, the, the Chinese, of course, had worked in the placer mining, the surface sure, mining. Sure, sure. And But by the time Butte was founded, um, plaster mining was sort of in the past in Butte. I mean, people still yeah. went out hoping to Strike gold pin, But it wasn't yeah. a, a, big a big rush. Big rush. It wasn't find, a big rush. Yeah, yeah. And um, so when the Chinese came to Butte, they really are in service occupations.
0: Okay. okay? Okay,
1: laundry and laundry all sorts of things involved in prostitution as well as mm-hmm. lots of other people mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, And there was some... And, and the
0: copper um, was... Um, the copper, Anaconda Copper Company, was really in charge of all of this copper extraction? Or was there so, other companies yeah, that were... Yeah, there,
2: there were other companies. Okay. I mean, it, you know, it didn't start out as a monopoly. There were several other companies. Okay. And... Um, but by... Um, The turn, but around, I believe it would be 1906, though I have to confess as a historian, I'm terrible at dates. (laughs) So you should double check. Um, But the Anaconda Copper Company does consolidate a lot of these. And there were, you know, there's a a famous book for those of us who love Butte called Mm -hmm. The War of the Copper Mm King. So there were these battles between, you know, the different owners of companies. And so it was very, it was a very tumultuous. Right. Time and and the workers were not unified. There were factions who okay. supported different groups. But the other really fascinating part about workers' political and cultural life is it was also the scene of a lot of different um, radical movements. Mm-hmm. So the socialists were there. It had a socialist mayor right. in the in right. the teens. The um, industrial workers of the world were active. Mm-hmm. There was the infamous lynching of Frank Little. Right. Um, And so people, you, you know, people might all agree that the power of a corporation needed to be checked in some way. But they didn't all agree on how or what mm. the political philosophy And how that would get be. divided
1: up then too if power mm-hmm. was being, you know, divvied out in different places. Okay, so you say that Butte didn't you know, was never and and then didn't even become one of these community towns. I and mean, it was probably too big and there was all these other things going on for whatever reason. It had a university, still has one. So there's other probably power centers to some degree mm-hmm. but all these other things going on so back to your research about um, your master's research about prostitution and then just your are interested uh, in women and leisure time tell us what you found about both those things was there anything that surprised you about prostitution in butte or women's leisure time give us a little uh, summary yeah. of that work so i i think that um
2: i think like many people who read about the american west I had this naive and somewhat romanticized view of prostitution. I mean, when you just think of the titles of the books, Red Lights mm-hmm. on the Prairie, Soiled Doves, you know, et cetera, oh, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. And it was a horrible, sordid, hard, vicious, violent life. And, you know, women turned to alcohol and drugs to ameliorate their conditions. There's a, um, There were many fake memoirs of prostitutes oh, interesting they were actually written by reformers to try reformers to try and um you know publicize the horrors of prostitution and try to uh, this is again the progressive era trying to sure. clean up society and right. there were big government and federal investigations into prostitution in the united states but one memoir that has been uh documented called madeline um, she works in chicago and she ends up getting on a train and you I, I still remember I was sitting in the library at the University of North Carolina I turned the page and she says and I got off the train in Butte Montana <laughs> <laughs> I was like oh my gosh yeah. right <laughs> right and and then what happened and she why did she go to butte do you know well I think that she you know like many workers including prostitutes they were very mobile you you know they would go where they heard there was money and this is a big booming mining right, town right. and um she had a gambling addiction oh. there was a lot of gam- wide open gambling in Butte but she when she later writes her memoir she commented that um That she had never seen such sordid conditions Mm -hmm. for prostitutes as those who worked in Butte. Oh gosh! Wow. Wasn't
0: she the one that talked about how prostitutes would work in these dingy basements on dirt floors? Was that hers? I can't can't remember remember. if that's the description, but she does. You you
2: know, I did that in looking at the at the at prostitution in Butte. Did see this um, kind of hierarchy of people who women who worked in. Parlor houses for madams who paid off the police and they had protection. And then poorer um, women who might have been drug addicts or alcoholics or couldn't afford the clothing that would be required to work in um, a parlor house or a brothel ended up in these
1: oh, what were called cribs these right. little yeah.
2: rooms that they would rent by the day or the yeah. night yeah so um, the story
1: of a madam with a house like a brothel that we're in that's really not the not majority the, of, yeah, of women exactly. who had to work that way mm.
2: and she would even comment that the madams were um you know they controlled what uh clothing the they would say okay you have to buy your clothing from this and such a person okay right and they would take a cut mm-hmm. and so it was very
0: you you traded any kind of autonomy for some protection yeah mm-hmm. yeah. yeah wow and the food that, that even the food they ate they had to pay for in the in, in those houses mm-hmm. and and the, and the clothing that they had and then if they left they couldn't take any of the clothing with them right. and so it was just this cycle it was mm-hmm. just you're, it's just stuck. Off. you're yeah. stuck you're Indent- stuck indentured servitude yeah, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. wow yeah and I remember her talking about that in that book and so yeah mm-hmm. just awful mm-hmm.
1: so for the other women who yeah. who maybe had leisure time or even yeah. these women aside from gambling yeah. um, what kind of things did
2: you find well I'm not sure but I mean I, I imagine the prostitutes rested when they could sure <laughs> <laughs> probably sleeping, but you know, I mean, i i looked I looked at the. I also looked at the interwar period from nineteen forty one from nineteen fourteen to forty one because that was when Butte was starting to go into decline okay. in terms of population. And you know, every a lot of Western history was written about the boom times, you know, and, yes. and the sort of triumphant story of settling the West, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I wanted to know what was it like when. Um, World War One started, right. when these labor troubles hit, etc. And that of course coincided with prohibition in the 1920s and women getting the right to vote. And so it was an interesting story of women coming into the 20th century mm. in a in an industrial city where there were a lot of commercial amusements and so a lot of struggles with their families. Mm -hmm. You're going to the dance hall. Right. With who? Yeah. Yeah. All new. All all new stuff. And you're getting your hair cut in a bob. (laughs) And you're wearing that short dress.
0: Uh, You're
2: showing uh, your ankles. Right. (laughs) And aren't you going to mass on Sunday? So, you know, it was interesting to see those family tensions. Sure. And just through memoirs and oral histories and people um, uh, and little stories in the paper, so like a federal, again, part of this progressive era worry about people's morality, the um, U.S. Children's Bureau set up an investigation of dance halls.
0: Really? So they,
2: yeah. They, yeah so they send a woman to. She travels throughout the country, but she oh, comes to Butte to visit dance halls and to see. <laughs> wow. you know what's going on. They're right? like, who
1: is that lady in the corner? Yeah. who's taking notes <laughs> and staring at everyone. Oh my gosh! Or was she out there like yeah, I, I try say, to imagine. That might be the best job in the world. I don't know. <laughs>
2: There was <laughs> so much. I mean, and you think if you think about, here's a town with a wide open red light district as well, right? And then these young women who are starting to work in department, the new department stores, or as waitresses, they have some money, even though most of them give most of their money to their mother. Um, but you know, they go to movies. They might be there sitting in the dark with a young man, mm. and, and so it's just mm-hmm. part of that whole national trend toward a. a um, commercialized leisure and a dating versus right. just going, going to chaperone parties at people's houses right. and things like that, you know, like, and so there would be stories and, and it would tie interestingly into um, the labor situation because there would be stories in the newspaper that the department stores paid young women so little that they had to work as freelance prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Oh my word. Right. right. Okay. You know? That couldn't be good though for the department store.
0: Well, (laughs) (laughs) maybe. Upside downside. There's like a little
1: bit of, yeah, I don't know. And you
0: said in your master's, thesis that they paid the men more. They paid the women significantly less. Mm -hmm. And that's how a lot of these women got into prostitution because men would come into the department store and they'd see these women and they'd say, would you like to go out for dinner? And the woman would go to dinner and have a free dinner Mm -hmm. and be like, wow, this is the best I've eaten in a week, you know, because they made so little they could barely survive. And then the, maybe the next date, he'd give her a trinket, mm-hmm. and she's like, oh, you know, and these women were probably poor from right. poor families. and innocent.
2: Yeah. You know, this was yeah. all new territory. Good slippery slip, slip, right. slip right. slope. Slippery right. slope to right. prostitution. Yeah, and then you mm-hmm. add in automobiles yeah. and, uh, and road right. houses. Yes. and so you can mm-hmm. see why yeah. the clergy and parents and reformers were not,
1: uh, they were onto it. They, they knew. You know,
2: they were nervous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They were nervous. And we'll never know how many it, yeah. you, you know the stories are very sensational yeah. and um but but you know if you're if you're thinking about what concerns and then you could try to read behind the text and you right. know and you know I talked to several women who worked um who were worker who had been workers and then the women um one of the most interesting unions in Butte was called the women's protective union oh. and it was a union for Unskilled women who were cooks and chambermaids. I mean, I now think cooking is a skill, but you know, at the time it was not defined as a skilled labor. Um, theater ushers, you know, all kinds of that yeah. sort of service, early service, and they were uh, labor and they were all in this one union. And, um, they would, they talked about how great the union was. For them, as a social network, so they'd Mm. (coughs) work, they'd go to a union meeting, and then they'd go to the movies or to an ice cream parlor,
1: or so a much safer way to socialize Mm -hmm. and spend your time. Okay, right, yeah, right,
0: yeah. Wow. Did those unions really help women uh, make better pay or have better social Mm. or or, uh, working situations? Oh my gosh, yes, really. The
2: women who were the
0: business managers,
2: you know, the who who like were the enforcers yeah. for the labor rules, they would walk into a cafe mm-hmm. and if a woman was sleeping was uh, sweeping the floor and her job was dishwasher, they'd take the broom out of her hand wow. and they'd say, You are not doing that job.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. Really? That's amazing. That is yes. amazing. Oh yes. my gosh. Oh they my gosh.
2: were fearless. Wow.
1: Okay. All right, we're gonna get to some more interesting questions, but we're gonna take a quick station break. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Mary Murphy about her work on gender and food history and Butte, Montana. So, Mary, we want to come, I want to come
0: back and talk a little bit about women in Butte, kind of stay on this idea of women in Butte, and talk about a woman who you've written on, whose name is Mary McLean. And it, she lived in Butte, not for a long time, but she lived there for a few years. And she was a person, we really see all these changes that you were just talking about happening Within her life. And then she luckily wrote about them in a book. And that was in about 1902. So, just right at the, you know, at this time that you're talking about a little bit before the um, focus of 1914 to 1941. But she really lived into that era. So, um, she wrote a book kind of about her leisure time, kind of about her life. And kind of about her frustrations with her life as a young woman growing up in Butte in 1902. And she really challenged the notions of what young middle-class women were supposed to think and feel. So they, you know... There was a lot of restrictions on these women. Like you were mm-hmm. saying, their parents were like, what? You're going to the dance hall? What? You're not going to go to mass? And so I think a lot of women were pushing against some of these. And, and Mary McLean was definitely one of them who did this. Um, so she outraged readers when she claimed that she wanted not merely romance, but seduction. So I think that, that's, <laughs> and you wrote that in this article that you wrote about her. And I love that. And so she wanted, she really craved, um, different and expanded experiences than she had had in her young life. But I think she, as she was seeing other women around her not having experience, and and she wanted other women to have experience too as as well of herself. And, of course, this book she wrote was a hit. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about her and her life and Mm -hmm. why you think her book hit such a chord with women at this time? Well,
2: I think she was – exactly what she wanted to be and that was outrageous wow. you know she's it, she, you, you kind of, I was thinking about her and thinking she didn't really care what people thought about her as long as they were thinking about her mm-hmm. you know today today we might yes, say sure. she wanted to be a celebrity exactly you know? and, yes but she also I think broke a mold of um, I mean there were some other writers at the time this a diary of Opal Whitley who also talked about their sort of inner life. Right. And her, so she talks about, you know, walking the sand pits, which of course there really weren't sand pits in Butte, but she, you know, she took poetic license and thinking about what a dark, barren landscape and how was she ever going to have experience and have life and meet the devil. And she talks Mm -hmm. about sensuality. And so she sends this, um, and she was frustrated because her, stepfather according to the story had lost the money that he supposedly put aside to send her and her sister to college so she wasn't going to be able to go to college and she sort of sees she sees herself stuck in beauty and um, so she's writing this diary in you know there's a lot more scholarship on her now than when I wrote and I'll I'll tell you a little bit about how to find that but she sends off to this publisher a beautifully handwritten, so it's not like the scratched daily diary. Yeah. So there's a construction there to her narrative. But for some reason, she sends her book to this um, religious press. Oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> dear. <Okay. laughs> in, in Chicago, who fortunately... Um, said, this is not for us, but let me <laughs> let me send it across the street to this other publisher. That was very like, kind. Goodness. They
1: didn't burn it. They Absolutely. Didn't send it yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. And
2: so Herbert Stone, publisher, publishes the book. And as you said, Crystal, it becomes a hit. And I think it was just, I mean, where in 1902 would you read the memoir of a young woman who talks about wanting to dance with the devil and, right. you know, fall in love with People of different genders, yeah. and wow. you know all of this yeah. kind of stuff, and so she takes her, what at the time were considerable royalties, and leaves Butte as fast as she can, mm-hmm. and and then um, uh, and she she's kind of like a, you know, this hot flame for a while, mm-hmm. lots of acclaim, and and she loved that, and and then her life gets rockier and also more uh, harder to track, mm-hmm. but she. Um, goes to new york city she there 's a quite a bohemian culture there in Greenwich Village. Right. She associates with other women who were in a club called um, the uh, oh i can 't remember the name of it now, but other women of kind of like minds okay yeah. and she has a, a series of lovers, male and female. At one point, she stars in a film. I, I don't think anybody's been able to find an extant <laughs> copy of it. No, oh, my I, goodness. They, I
0: have, I have, I know.
2: So how, that they where's the information it?
1: come from that she was in a film? Oh, that
2: was pretty, that was pretty well documented in newspapers. Interesting. And stuff. So there's
0: actually quite a bit oh, wow. of information there's about
1: gotta that. There's got to be some yeah. copy of it somewhere. I
0: know. Someday, maybe they'll find one. Right,
2: right. <laughs> and then she writes two more books. She writes mm-hmm. another book um, called Annabelle Lee, a kind of, conversation with a young woman and then she writes another memoir but neither of those um were as well received Mm -hmm. or as sensationally received because Mm. it wasn't as sensational right where are you going to go from there there. Yeah. 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 yeah um and so she kind of lives off um the kindness of of so friends mm-hmm. and strangers, and she dies, we think, of tuberculosis mm-hmm. in a boarding house in Chicago. In
1: Chicago. Yeah. Okay. Hmm.
2: But there's this fantastic website called the Mary McLean Project, and um, some people have just, just became entranced with her, and they have published a Mary McLean Reader with... Because she wrote a lot for magazines and newspapers. She could never hold down a steady job. She'd get hired uh, by interesting. a magazine or a newspaper sure. to do something, and then she'd go off and do what she wanted. Or
1: So never wanted to get married, never settled in any way. No, I mean, it's so interesting because in Butte, those those without going to college, your opportunities that she could see in front of her were... Yeah. Marriage or one of these awful right jobs limited, that aren't gonna you know. yeah pay the yeah. bills yeah. okay mm-hmm. wow I just think she's so
0: fascinating and and unfortunately. A- a somewhat tragic a pretty tragic sure. life mm-hmm, sure. and mm-hmm. dying destitute you know in a boarding house in Chicago so sad mm-hmm. um, for her potential that she had but I, the book is really interesting because it does give you a sense of Butte in 1902 from mm-hmm. from a young woman's perspective right. which is not the perspective right. of the Copper Kings or the other people writing about Butte mm-hmm. so I thought I, I think it's interesting yeah. in that respect right. too. that is right. fascinating
1: um, so Mary focusing on gender history um, seems it's not uh, unsurprising that your research will come around to the historic role of food culture, food production um, in the American West partly as a way of understanding um, women's labor, women's history what they're doing um, and really we have to sustain anybody who's living in the West mm-hmm. so food is of paramount importance so you've written on topics that include good food in hard times and Bittersweet, Gender Food, and the State in the U.S. and Canadian West during World War One, just to name um, a couple of the things you've written. So tell us a little bit about why the study of food is so important and what, from your perspective, it can tell us about our history.
2: Well, as you know, everyone eats several times a day unless something is wrong. <laughs> yeah. Right. Whether they By right. choice or right. not. And yeah. um, and it is, it's something that we just take for granted. And yet it's one of those things, just like I think social history um, started out in the 1970s, looking underneath that story. So, like, how is your food produced, you know? Right. How do you get lemons on a homestead in Montana? Right. You know, these kinds yeah. of questions who cooks, who cleans up, there's lots of labor, the division of labor involved in here. And then I, I came to work on food because I was looking for another project in women's history. And um, I know this is blasphemous to say in Montana, I was, but I was thinking about doing a a book on women's social activism, and I knew that I would have to deal, of course, with Jeanette Rankin. Mm-hmm. And I'm just tired of Jeanette. <laughs> I mean, I love what she accomplished, but I'm just, I've just—Jeanette has been with me since there's I a came lot, to Montana. Lot out there, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So, and I have—I have written about Jeanette, but. I had enough. So yeah. I was, um, and I had had a accident at the time and people were bringing us food. Oh. And everybody who brought food had a story. story. You know, this is my grandmother's chicken soup. Mine is the best lasagna in the Gallatin Valley, et cetera, et cetera. And I started thinking about, you know, what I had said earlier, Nancy, about the, the labor landscape for women in Montana. And, you know, in a capitalist society, you get a claim by the salary you make right. and the position that you hold in right. terms of the economic ladder. Well, when you are um, a woman who works her entire life without pay, how do you get how any, do you get yes, any kind exactly. of exactly. Where, where's your
1: stature come from? Where's your sense of identity come mm-hmm. from? Yeah.
2: And I'm was sitting in my chair and kind of thinking about this one day and I thought, food. Mm-hmm. You know, these stories that people mm-hmm were telling me in my house, but then I thought about county fairs, mm-hmm. you know, and or the state fair, or people who um, were famous for their coconut cake, mm-hmm. or could I have that recipe, or tales I had heard, even though at that point I hadn't done too much rural history of, um, you know, traveling thresher crews and this kind of competition among farm women over who was going to cook the best Harvest supper, right? And would, right. The, would the workers come back to that farm because
1: that was that was be really the best good food? food. Oh wow! Well, so you competed for labor, basically, exactly. to get your harvest in. Exactly. Ooh, yeah. So
2: I started thinking mm. I could work on all the issues I'm interested yes. in: power, the division of labor, women's identity through the lens of food. Yes. And I think that you know we can then extrapolate that. I mean, so the way I started to prepare for that project was to design an undergraduate course. On the history of food in America, and just try to look at these issues of the cultural meaning of food for different groups. At um, you know, who, so so think about think about race and food. You mm-hmm. know, think about the food that slaves raised and right. could not eat. Right. You know how is food distributed? Right. Or the families in certain cultures where. The men sat at the table, got the choicest bits of food, and whatever was left, the women and children ate. And if there wasn't anything left, they didn't have any food. Mm-hmm. Right. So I thought this is a really, it, this is a really interesting way to look at power. Yeah, um, and I didn't know at the time, but I it was you know probably in the, the the subconscious world of historians, it had seeped into me that there was a
1: lot going on in food studies. Yeah. I mean, power, labor, economy, environment, um, so much, so many different all levels there. of going on. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and then just. Aside from that, nutrition and health and all of that aspects, too. Yeah, and, of course, race and gender and, yeah, yeah, culture. So, yeah, you could really go in many directions for the rest of your career. Exactly. And I'm looking
0: forward to that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, Mary, I had the opportunity to sit in on your Food in America class one semester, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was amazing. We learned all about the history of the of production of food, um, consumption consumption of food, um, and the cultural meaning of food in America from basically the colonial time to present. And it was such an interesting way to look at history, like you're saying. and, And for me you know with an interest in culture to me that really stood out as we were going through that class but um one of my favorite and because of that one of my favorite topics was the history of chinese food in america that was my favorite i think you you spent a week on that or maybe a few days i can't remember it maybe it just seemed like a week <laughs> Because I was so enthralled with it,
1: of I course, would be hungry
0: during every class, know, especially
1: I mean, doing this. And Crystal has told me so much about the history of Chinese food from your class that I've been yeah. like, we can't wait to do this part of the podcast, and then I'm going to have to go eat some Chinese food.
0: But the, the best part is that Mary would sometimes bring in food. Oh I mean, my gosh! I did, I did bring in fortune oh, cookies. Yes, <laughs> and your fudge. You brought in. You oh, brought in your beef um, fudge. Beef fudge. Yeah. Which actually is pretty good. No. Made with beef. I'm it's afraid beef. to ask, but very curious. That's another long story. Okay. <laughs> We'll do another podcast okay. on beef fudge. Okay. But, okay. but I want to talk to you, ask you about the history of Chinese food in America, and especially chop suey So, can you give us a condensed version of your lectures, <laughs> lecture lectures on Chinese food in America?
2: Okay, I'll try. Okay. (laughs) So, yes, chop suey became the iconic Chinese American food. And there are a couple of stories about how it originated, and nobody really knows the truth, which Hmm. is so true of so much food history. And. And even the history of food like who the heck ever figured out how to eat an artichoke, right? Even, right. I know, you think right. about these things. Wait, can
1: before you dive in? Yes. Can we just please start with my childhood and then <laughs> jump all the way back to what you're going to tell us? Because I grew up with mom making chop suey in a can, mm-hmm. and I, and every time I say that, everyone's like, "Oh yeah, yes. my mom yes. did that too. I forgot about it." And my mom worked in a Chinese restaurant. She loved oh, Chinese really? food. We see pictures of her, and we're like, "Mom, you looked." Asian in those pictures. I mean, it's really? fascinating. You can ask my sisters; they're all here. Right. It's so funny. But we, but it, in any event, she loved Chinese food cooked by real Chinese people. But then somewhere, as she became a mom in the in the early nineteen seventies, mm-hmm. we were eating yeah. chop suey out of a can and the little noodles you right. sprinkle on top. So now I'm really dying to hear <laughs> the real history. Okay.
2: <laughs> well, so the two stories that you know a lot of there's actually a lot of literature now on Chinese food in America were. That in the 19th century, in San, of course in San Francisco, um, these hungry white miners came into Chinatown and a lot of Chinese restaurants would just hang out a little yellow flag, which, which they were mostly for Chinese workers, just to say this is a restaurant and you can find food here. Oh. So these miners apparently stumble into this restaurant which has actually closed for the day because they've run out of food. And the miners demand food, and the Chinese, you know, living in an environment of anti-Chinese sentiment, are not going to refuse to serve hungry white miners. And so they just take whatever scraps are left in the kitchen and do what we now figure out is a quick stir-fry with rice and serve it. And they loved it. And they ask what it was. And what they hear is chop suey, which apparently translated into a miscellany right so it it, it didn't mean anything interesting like okay. then the other story is that in 1896 a chinese diplomat who was had been traveling in europe comes to, to to tour and visit the united states and his visit is covered in a lot of newspapers and one of the stories is that he had He didn't want to eat European food, so he would eat in chop suey joints in the various cities that he went to. And both New York and San Francisco claimed that this was the case in their cities and that um, it popularized Chinese food. Well, there's not a speck of truth to that. He did come. He did not go to California in protest against how California treated the Chinese. Oh, wow. And he was a very high-ranking a Chinese diplomat. So he traveled with three cooks. He would never go to a chop suey <laughs> joint for dinner, you know, the cooks cooked in the hotel restaurant. Wow. But what his visit did was to make uh, China and Asia in particular fascinating mm-hmm. to Americans.
1: Okay. And
2: so what had been kind of restaurants for Chinese workers in cities that were patronized by some whites who felt very adventurous going mm-hmm. into Chinatown all of a sudden become as they say the chop suey craze right mm-hmm. Okay. so that the number of chop suey restaurants in New York doubles so what decade is this? this is around 1900 okay so his visit the diplomat's visit is i think 1896
1: okay so right after right. starts to really pick up right mm-hmm.
2: and what's interesting for the west so of course you, you know the chinese are concentrated in california after the uh, Transcontinental Railroad is completed. Those who stay have to find other work, and as Nancy said, they're in laundry and they're um, raising gardens, mm-hmm. and you know they're um, working in Chinatown. Chinatowns congregate, and um, and they start these restaurants, very humble, very cheap. So it's great for working people mm-hmm. to go. They get a lot of food, um, and in Mon- and you can see. All these little Western towns. I mean, I I know you've both driven around the West, right? And yeah. if if there's not one in existence, you can see the sign right. from the Chinese restaurant, and usually mm-hmm. it's one, right? right? Mm-hmm. So a place like Butte had several noodle parlors, and that's okay. what they were known as chop suey joints or noodle
1: parlors. Okay, um, was there a difference between them, or just no? Okay. It was just what they what were they called. called. Okay,
2: and um, but but Montana, like. Joliet, Montana had a Chinese restaurant. Wow. Malta, Harlowton, at one point Plentywood. This is wow. all in the early part of the 20th century. Wow. That's they're everywhere. But if you look at a map, they're all on the railroad. Okay, mm-hmm. You know, close. And, yeah. yeah, and so what, um, what some historians of, of, food, of Chinese food in America have argued is that places like Chinatown in San Francisco after the uh, earthquake and fire in 1906, the Chinese merchants associations rebuilt Chinatown as a tourist attraction. Oh. So the wonderful gates, yes, that, you know, right, that was that all designed yeah. to um, make China make the Chinese community seem safer. Interesting. And the restaurants would, you know, to combat all of the negative stereotypes of the Chinese and what they ate, et cetera, they would invite patrons to come through the kitchen. Mm. So, they could see how clean mm-hmm. it was and what was being cooked. Mm-hmm. And so, there's this kind of um, very savvy marketing to try and, and mitigate that deep animosity toward the Chinese. But in other places, Chinese found that, you know, one f- family or one man and a companion moved to a town. One restaurant was not threatening to the community, right? They weren't competing for other jobs, so you have these scad this diaspora out of the West Coast, and and of course, you know there were Chinese who had worked on the railroads in Montana, and um, and they're connected through the Tong, the merchants' associations, and family lines. Um, But it was I I think a it was a a tactic to stay and make a living, be able to send money back to China, mm-hmm. to their families, where hopefully they could buy land and return at some point, um, and and just minimize the kind of discriminatory treatment that they received if there was a group who seemed to be threatening. Hmm. Um, so do
1: you think that the goal of a lot of these um, Chinese who were opening restaurants in Montana was that they would be Staying temporarily, and and it was to go back. So they weren't looking at permanent Uh immigration and raising their children as Americans. Not that they were necessarily being invited to do that anyway. But that wasn't the goal necessarily. Right. Well,
2: and I mean, they didn't really have a lot of choice because the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was passed in 1882, said laborers could not come in. You you know, you had to be of a certain class. The, only the wives of merchants could come in. So talk about a gender imbalance. Yeah, I mean, right. there are there right. are very there are very few families, mm-hmm. and um, and so and the men were called sojourners. You know, this idea of coming and returning. Mm-hmm. And um, Rose Humley, who Crystal and I have talked about, she was um, born in Butte of a Chinese family, and she grew up and became a sociologist, and she studied Butte's Chinatown, and she wrote about how. The Chinese would send money back to China to buy rice lands, oh. and every year they would wait to hear what the results of the rice harvest would be, because wealth was and status was in rice. In rice, yeah, and um, and that was of course a huge import to you know the West Coast mm-hmm. for Chinese workers. Wow. Um, so I, it's I think it's a fascinating history of sort of adaptation i mean they were they were never given the opportunity to assimilate no i mean they couldn't own
1: land right at least in california i didn't know if that was exactly the same all over but there were land
2: acts that they couldn't own land they could not become citizens they couldn't vote they They, couldn't become citizens right unreal mm -hmm. i mean
1: what conditions to try to live Make and build a, a business yeah. under, you right. know, and then serving these people who, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: But uh, some of them did it amazingly well and mm-hmm. and became very wealthy, mm-hmm. especially in Butte. There was some families that did very well, mm-hmm. you know, so right. maybe not here as much in Bozeman, but in Butte for sure. Right. And, you know, Butte still has the remnants of Chinatown,
2: and mm-hmm. and I know that you have both been to the Pekin Noodle yeah. Parlor. Yes, yes. Um, which is, I mean, there's sort of... Um, you know, if you just Googled the peek in, and there was actually a story in the New York Times. I know, last week. week. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yes. oh yes. my With goodness. Great photographs. Yeah. Nice. And uh, so there's all these different claims. But I think what the, what the um, claim that would stand is, is that it is the longest operating noodle parlor owned by a family. Okay. By okay. one family. By one last. family. And okay. so different mm-hmm. descendants, and this recent article in Times talked about which grandson bought from whom, you know, but it stayed yeah. in that family. So I think there were probably other Chinese restaurants that might have been a long, around as long, but
1: not in one family's hands. Right, that's right. impressive. Then. Yeah. yeah, so it's very
2: impressive, and it's it's just an iconic institution. In, and so it. they
1: stayed here and and weathered through the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act, mm-hmm. and were able to you know have all these descendants. I mean, that's right. amazing. And then who knows how much money they had sent back to China over right. that time? Right, uh, It's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I, I just I love that. Um, I mean we haven't even touched on so many of the other communities in Butte, but that's that's certainly a really fantastic one to, and we to talk st- about. We
0: still have, you know, these little Chinese Restaurants all throughout Montana that are run by Chinese families. Mm-hmm. Which I I was just in Deer Lodge, and mm-hmm. I well yeah. a few months ago, and there was a Chinese family running the Chinese restaurant in Deer Lodge, and mm-hmm. it was really it was mm-hmm. great food right, right so, off the interstate. Right off the oh interstate. my god, the food yeah. is, is the only
1: it's,
2: it's really good.
1: good. Okay, <laughs> I need to know that. But there are there aren't like a proliferation of Chinese laundries all over the place. No, 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 no. and they yeah. were
2: driven out because of um be because like in Butte, the union said, women, widows need work.
1: They mm-hmm. need work. So you can't have white,
2: The white widows of, my, of men killed in the mines need work. Yeah. Don't take your laundry to the, the Chinese. Wow. Give that work to white
1: women. But see, I remember growing up with this commercial where this woman would take her stuff to the laundry, and it was a man and a woman, and the man would always do the front part, taking the thing in. Mm -hmm. And she would say, how do you get these shirts and socks so white? And he would say, oh, Mrs. So-and-so, she's like blonde hair and white. Ancient Chinese secret. I don't know if you remember that. And then he would turn around, and his Chinese wife would say, she'd hold up the box of whatever soap they were trying to sell. Ancient Chinese secret, huh? And so there's still that stereotype, right, and perception that persists Mm -hmm. very interesting though that Mm -hmm. you're saying in a lot of places they were kind of run out
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wasn't that commercial though for a for for um uh, like a rice like um i don't remember
1: it um, no it was it was flakes that you added to the wash to get stuff right because he was running a laundry Yeah. yeah yeah Right, right. Talk about a stereotype. I mean, in there, it very much is. (laughs) No, no, but (laughs) I know, right? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. But I have such a memory. It's the same one of that, the guy who who portrayed himself as an Indian, even though he was Italian, and he's the tear because people are, you know, um, littering. And it's just like when you grew up, when I did, I'm like finding out all these myths behind those ridiculous, facts you thought you were learning Ooh, oh yeah. My word yeah. yeah
0: okay so mary we've talked a lot about butte but i want to talk a little bit about what you do on a daily basis which is teach at montana state university and you are a beloved professor at msu in the history department and and teaching is really your specialty there's a lot of there's a lot of professors who teach but you are very good at it, and in, in very good at what you do. And I've talked to so many students who have gone through your de- through your classes in the history department, and your help for them, not just in the classroom but outside of the classroom is so important to them. and you've you've really brought up so many generations of women's history historians, gender historians, food historians, just historians in general. And you've influenced so many people um, through your passion for this work, for your passion with his, for history and your passion for uh, looking at the past, but also making it relevant today. And that's, of course, um, I mean, you're the reason I'm here doing this work and and doing this podcast um, today, because you are my committee chair <laughs> for my master's degree. And you really brought life to this to this history and
1: and made you definitely put the people in history yeah but it's never dry yeah Yeah. which i think sometimes we we have all Mm -hmm. experienced history that seems devoid of that personality in life you know that we could relate to Yeah. yeah and really made it
0: relevant to today so that's my question for you why do you think teaching history is important and why do you think it's relevant and why should we know history not just Students going into your, the history department at MSU, but the public, the general public, should know history. Okay. Yeah, but is this where I'm supposed to say
2: that the two of you are my very favorite students of all time?
1: Yes, that's you, can, I'm you definitely could. If you would. should, we're not going to cut that out. Okay. No. I, I, say. I, 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 say I took that. your writing class, and that was amazing. Yeah, as a grad student, I know. Okay, okay. Now you can go. Okay. okay. No, okay. No, okay.
2: Um, well, you know that's such a complicated question, and I think there's so many answers and i think that in at this moment in our lives you know where the country is is so fractured on ideological lines where the whole notion of a quote real fact comes into question Mm -hmm. is is a really important time to take history seriously right because History, I mean, the appeal, I think, of history for all of us is these wonderful stories. Mm -hmm. But good historians tell the stories based on the most accurate records that they can find, right? The first rule is to be true to your sources. Be true to those people, to the miners and the laundresses and the Chinese cooks and the prostitutes as best you can, right? To not invent their past for some present purpose and um so i think there's a i think it's a good i think studying history is a way to be ethical Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and i think that that is a really important value today i also think that studying history is really important because it shows us how at every single moment in time life was complicated yes you know, people like to, you know, how many times have we heard, oh, the good old days or mm-hmm. when America was great or in the good, good times, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look back or the greatest generation, well, what's mm. the greatest generation? Mm-hmm. You know, the people who were in the revolution, the people who lived in the depression. Mm-hmm. I mean, every generation has faced different challenges. We're facing this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I think that people want some, find some comfort in thinking about, The past or the present is black and white. But if you study history, it's just not, Mm -hmm. you know, it's people are irrational. People lives are chaotic. There's all kinds of forces that shape a person's decisions. And it doesn't always make sense if you don't try to understand the context of the time in which they're making those decisions. And I have to say that one of the most irritating phrases to me is, oh, he or she was just a
1: man or woman of their time. That's mm-hmm. what I get so frustrated about, yeah. too, as if they didn't know. Because I will hear that about the founding fathers all the time. Right. I'm like, but there was abolitionists. There, was abolitionists. there always was. Yeah. They, knew, they knew they were making a choice. Mm-hmm. And there were plenty of other people who had pointed out and other places that were already giving up slavery. Mm-hmm. So I don't think people understand their history as well and— and I love what you said, Mary. I, I was feeling because I just finished teaching a, an intro to anthropology course online and I asked them to reflect at the end. And a, a couple of people in, in one thing kind of mentioned how, well, it doesn't really have an impact on today, these mm. things we study about mm. the past. And I find that I have to address that when mm-hmm. I hear that. And, and much like you said, I, I think that when We are trying to make decisions today, politically, economically, in the world, locally, whatever. We are asking questions like, well, what needs to be solved? And in order to solve it, we have to know how it got that way. Mm -hmm. And if we don't truly Mm -hmm. understand the history of how something got that way, we really can't even begin to make Mm -hmm. decisions about the future. Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that goes over a lot of people's right. heads who don't study it right yeah
2: and I think that people you know just as you were saying and that was a lovely compliment that I made my classes interesting it is unfortunate that a lot of history is dry for many people and um, because how engaging it should be you know yes. to, and, and to yes. understand these yes. questions and I think that people sometimes I mean I think in our current um, uh, world, People think of the sciences as hard, mm, difficult, mm-hmm. complicated, important, mm-hmm. but they don't think of the humanities mm-hmm. as hard, difficult, complicated, or important. And I've come to think of this all of this analogy that you know science may someday cure cancer, but the humanities can cure racism and how many more people are affected by racism than are affected by cancer. Right. If we understand why people are treated with um, in, in, in as they're not equal. Yeah. Right. Exactly. When they're treated not unequally, fully human. Yeah. Yeah. Not fully human. Um, and, you know, the the contemporary discussions about the problems of critical race theory and et cetera, et cetera. You know, all you have to do is read the most superficial American history textbook, to see evidence of systemic racism from the very beginning of this country. And all of the kind of calls for liberty and freedom are are also just these misreadings of, you know, because they'll they'll always reference the founding fathers, et cetera, et cetera. But the founding fathers also believed in civic virtue, right, that you had to put aside your own self-interest for the public good. And that rights come with responsibility. So if you don't take history seriously enough to really try and understand how complicated our past was, and as you said, Nancy, why we got here, how can we address these complexities? I also think history is important, and I do this assignment in my freshman class, is now that we... You know, can access ancestry dot com through the library. I ask students to just choose some relative and research him or her because I want them to see themselves as um, connected to the people of the past. yes, right? Yes. And that that they yes, they're born in you know nineteen ninety nine or something mm-hmm. like that. but they have they have people. Um, Going back generations, whether they're adopted or they're their blood kin or and they lived in different times. And what we're going to do in this class is learn about the times they lived in and then how you you got here. Right. Mm -hmm. So that we're not just kind of plunked out. The stork didn't drop us off in Bozeman, (laughs) you know, without a context, without a culture, without a past, you know, without. Reasons for why the people who are in our families or our communities think the way that they do.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, to me, studying history is just as hard as studying physics. You know, you have yeah. to try to figure out yeah. what the you know the the facts of a
1: scenario are, where the quote truth right. lies, where the biases. how people made decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, that for me, yeah. taking a class on federal Indian law, mm-hmm. you are you are doing history actually, Mm because you're studying from the beginning. And I don't think I ever comprehended as well as I did after that course, how deep and entrenched the racism is in this country, because of the way those decisions would be Mm -hmm. worded and made Mm -hmm. when you see them as going down as as legal declarations, Mm -hmm. um, or just what was said on the side, and then that's taken. I mean, it's astonishing. Um, So um, I think you've said an, an amazing, wonderful things about what makes history relevant, a lot of food for thought for listeners. Um, and because we're sort of ending our conversation today, we're almost out of time, we just want to see if you could give us a little teaser about what you're working on now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point in my career, I've decided I need to do things
2: that are fun yes. and enjoyable, yes. and, you know, and serious as well. And so I have three colleagues Uh, Jan Zuha, who works at um, MSU. You all know Jan. We we did
0: a podcast with Jan. Mm -hmm. We laughed a lot. Yes.
1: So
2: good. And um, Zoe Ann Stoltz, who is the reference historian at the Montana Historical Society. Oh, fantastic. And Molly Krukenberg, who is now the director of the Historical Society, the first woman chosen as director of the Historical Society. So very exciting. It's very (laughs) exciting. Um, And we have been working on a book that we have tentatively titled Cooking Up the Past. Oh. Oh, I love it. Yeah, a yeah. history of Montana Foodways. So it's a series of short essays on everything from sauerkraut to Chinese food.
0: Awesome. Um,
2: and so it's a lot of fun. It'll have a lot of illustrations. Oh, my gosh. We're, we're trying to use primary sources, so we're hearing voices and examples and use old montana cookbooks That's as fantastic. sources which have some recipes like um pork
1: cake oh you no know, i don't and... know i
0: can do beef fudge but i don't know <laughs> no, pork. Cake. no i would way rather
1: do pork cake oh, Ew. No, anything we... that has meat and fudge in the same is just whoa maybe crispy. you'll have to do a cook-off oh yeah. yes there we go and then we have to eat each other so you're yeah, really yeah. good okay okay so, so I, I mean, we have a lot to look forward to we to should host something to. here and do a workshop on some montana recipes maybe yeah. here at the brothel oh, that good. would be it's really great. fun yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah
0: so when is that when when are
2: you looking to i think it's going to be a couple years okay you know everybody yeah. especially since molly became director yeah. of the society and as you know jan does so much work with the ivan doig archive yeah. Yeah. it's um and i'm i'm has some several phd students i'm trying to yeah, usher to yeah. the completion of their degree so oh, yeah. um every summer we get a
1: burst of enthusiasm oh, good yeah. good it's well, but it got to take it bull by the horns I, and go mm-hmm, with it and then who knows retirement sounds like it won't be retirement for you when that comes yeah, yeah. it's yeah. just
0: gonna mean more writing time just, which
2: yeah is gonna exactly be it's just a shift yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Be nice okay well we could talk to you all day, Mary, and, and, and we've probably talked to you longer than we should. But um, it was so nice to have this time with you. Thank you so much for giving us so much time today and coming and visiting with us in person, too. It was so nice to see you.
2: My pleasure to spend time with my favorite students. Yay! Yay.
0: <laughs> I know we're not at the university anymore, so I got to pull you out over here. Yeah, right, right, that's great. Well, thank you, Mary, and thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please share it with a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up for you each week on your podcast app. We also have a Facebook page called The Dirt on the Past, so make sure to find that and like it. We put links to all our podcast episodes, but we also include links to articles, books, whatever we've talked about in the podcast today. Thanks again, Mary. And we hope you can join us again to find out
1: more about The the Dirt on the Past. (laughs) A big thank you to our sound editor and guru, Steve Durbin. And let us know what you think of our new music by Lawson Alegria.